The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Front de Libération du Québec, manifeste. The FLQ Manifesto. The Front de Libération du Québec is not the Messiah nor a modern-day Robin Hood. It is a regrouping of Quebec workers who have decided to use every means at their disposal to ensure that the people of Quebec assume control of their own destiny. The Front de Libération du Québec wants complete independence for all Quebecers, united in a free society, purged forever of its clique of voracious sharks. The Front de Libération du Québec finances itself through voluntary taxes, levied from the very enterprises which exploit the workers banks, finance companies, etc. At one time, we believed it would be to our advantage to channel our energies and our impatience into the Parti Québécois. But the liberal victory was a clear indication that what is called democracy here in Quebec has always been and still is the democracy of the rich. As a result, we are through with the British parliamentary system. The Front de Libération du Québec will no longer allow itself to be duped by the electoral crumbs which are disdainfully scattered in Quebec every four years by the Anglo-Saxon capitalists. A number of Quebecers have come to understand this and are ready to take action. In the coming year, Bourassa will have a rude awakening. 100,000 revolutionary workers organized and armed. We are terrorized by the capitalistic Roman Catholic Church, even though this is becoming less noticeable. And the day will come when the Westmounts of Quebec will be wiped off the map. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 17, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Paul McKeever. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 is always the number you can call to reach us. And this week, we bring you a tale of two uprisings, both in Canada. One uprising relatively resolved, though never quite extinguished, thanks to the continued fanning of flames by subsequent governments. The other uprising is now in progress and is, and is about to escalate as we are speaking these very words. On today's show, we hope to demonstrate how history repeats itself by bringing you a parallel of history and current events as if both were about to unfold before your eyes. Or ears, as the case may be, considering this is radio, eh, Paul? (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, we've already given you a hint of our historical point of reference, the FLQ crisis of 1970. I was only 18 years old then, and though an ingrained part of this country's very recent turbulent and violent history, today's greater media really doesn't talk about that that era anymore, does it, Paul? No, it doesn't. Or of how the leadership of the country at the time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, properly, in our view, uh, dealt with the crisis. And that's why I have to ask this question. What is that strange shirt you're wearing? It's got a picture of, oh my God, Pierre (laughs) Elliott Trudeau. I mean, is Che Guevara on the back of that or what? (laughs) Well, I have to say this is the first time I picked this up at a craft show. This is Pierre Elliott Trudeau and uh, I'm wearing it here in commemoration of, uh, well, the FLQ crisis and how he dealt with it. Okay, well, it's, uh, we'll find out why you're wearing that a little later on in the show, shall we? Sure. Uh, now, our opener this week, though it sounded like fiction, was part of this country's history. That was the real thing. Oh, yes. 
Um, it was not a reenactment or a made-for-TV uh, docudrama. What you heard was only a small part of the FLQ's manifesto, as read by a CBC announcer on, on, on October 8, 1970. It was a condition forced upon the network by an FLQ threat of violence. The FLQ was a terrorist group, one that shared in every way imaginable the same values, goals, and objectives of today's Occupy movements and the current event focus of the day, the so-called Idle No More movement, if it can even be called a movement in the normal sense of the term. Right. right. Now, in our selected sound bites for today's show, we've chosen two that feature representatives of the Idle No More movement, but believe it or not, none from anyone opposing or offering a balance to their arguments. And there were some great ones, too. We were sorely tempted to bring you the highlights of some of the best radio and TV commentators who have had the courage to say what needs to be said on the issue, like Michael Korn and, of course, Ezra Levant, who effectively blew the lid off the scandal at Attawapiskat and what seems to be criminal activity, to some degree, on the part of its chief and administrators. Brian Lilly as well. Yes. Um, Levant has described the whole hunger strike event as, quote, theater bought and paid for by unions and anti-Harper supporters, end quote. And he sure presented a lot of evidence to support his case on Sun TV. And by so doing, he demonstrated that with but a grain of truth or fact, you can do a lot of destruction to the credibility and power of a very dangerous movement within the country. Thank goodness. A movement, by the way, aimed at succession from Canada which was the exact goal of the FLQ for the province of Quebec, and the main reason we need to learn a lesson from history by reviewing it and comparing it to parallel events. Gee, maybe we should call up Leonard Peikoff and add, add one more chapter to his book, Ominous Parallels. Eh? <laughs> but to get back to my introductory points here, the balance of our sound bites features some, someone regular listeners to this show might think we would make every effort to shun and avoid. We talked about him, of course. And that is Pierre Trudeau himself. And in the past, you've heard us many times very critically condemn the economic policies and outright socialism represented by this individual, and we still do. Yeah. But you will marvel at just how unlike his son, Justin, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was. In fact, given the issues of our focus today, I can't even see how the past leader of Canada's Liberal Party is even on the same side of the issue as today's Justin Trudeau, <laughs> who everybody predicts can pull off an electoral victory should he assume the helm of today's federal Liberals. Both father and son were, and, you know, are socialist, and a bit economically disastrous. But as a statesman, the elder Trudeau stands unparalleled. Head and shoulders, yeah. So, what's it all about? Looking, looking at a review of some of the commentaries we've read in our papers, Herman Gooden in his January 5th London Free Press commentary writes, quote, I was soon reminded of the Occupy Wall Street protests from the year before, which blighted public spaces and parks in cities across Canada and the U.S. Here again were the angry and maddeningly inarticulate spokespeople, mostly denouncing Prime Minister Stephen Harper for either his inaction or active malfeasance. What did these people actually want? Why, hand over a whole lot of taxpayers' money, of course. As if the obscene amount of money currently being frittered away in native communities across the country was not already more than enough. December 22nd, um, 2012, letter to the editor-writer Michael Rouse, who describes himself as a participant in the Idle No More protest, writes that the protest is about, quote, establishing and asserting democratic rights, end quote and cites Egypt and Syria as examples of what they're trying to do and the kind of suffering that we should have to go through, you know. <laughs> 
But Mr. Rouse should have consulted Chief Joe Miskokoman, Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Muncie, who in his letter to the editor, which appeared right above the letter by Rouse, has a, had an entirely different objective than establishing democratic rights, which are in no way part of Aboriginal heritage, nor part of their current objectives. Chief Miskokoman makes it clear that the marches are being held to, quote, raise awareness of the federal government's continued lack of engagement with First Nations on a nation-to-nation basis, end quote. Yes, that's the talking point. That's it. In other words, the marchers do not want to be part of Canada. They want to be a separate country, but continue to get cash from Canadians. Certainly appears that way. Uh, which, with which to financially operate their quote-unquote country, according to some imaginary treaty relationships, none of which I've actually seen have ever suggested such an arrangement at any time. No. Usually the opposite. Yeah, we'll get into those too. Yeah. Now, January 8th, Mary Costa, letter to the editor-writer, said she supports the Idle No More protesters because, quote, they're standing up for our lakes and rivers, end quote and, of course, for the nation-to-nation relationship with this government. And of course, the, the latter is what they're really after. Sure. The first one is not not even on the agenda. That's the misdirection. Their demands are, in essence, no different from the demands of the FLQ. To support either, whether morally or physically or financially, is to find yourself supporting either splitting up the country, terrorism, communism, poverty, hatred, violence, injustice, a destruction of life, liberty, and property are all of the above. Mm-hmm. And it's not just us saying that. We're going to hear some very prominent voices saying the same thing. Yes. Now, I was, I was reading uh, Larry Corney's uh, article here in the Free Press back on December 9th where he mentioned some of the grievances he saw written on the signs protesting in downtown London. We had a uh, what, what do they call it? A flash mob. But it was a pre-announced flash mob, so I don't know how, how that's a flash mob, but mm. still, <laughs> that's what they called it, and it was at downtown King and Richmond. And here's what he saw on some of the signs uh, that were on, that the protesters were helping, or holding. And, um, revoke Bill C-45, the omnibus bill, which includes the, the, the provision, of course, you know, of how to use natural resources. Quote, our native land says it all, that was one of the placards. And this one was a good one. Your government and your Bible were created by white misogynist bigots to gain power and control. Respect First Nations sovereignty. So that's kind of the message that they were get it, get giving. Now, it's from a headline. MP asks Spence to end hunger strike December 9th. In which Chief Spence is quoted as saying... Canada is considered a first... This is from the Free Press, by the way. Canada is considered a first-world country, and our peoples are living in extreme poverty and substandard living conditions. Well, that's an interesting complaint, considering they want out of the country, and they aren't even in the country as such. They want out. In fact, you know, it seems to me that the laws and behaviors that make Canada a first-world country, which are mainly freedom and capitalism, are the very things that Spence is against. Yes both in her, in her advocacy and her practice. They're, they're all anti-freedom and they're communist in their viewpoints. Quote, as nations, we held up our end of the treaty, yet Canada continues to only pay lip service to our relationship. Well, I don't know, I've been looking at things, Paul. I know you're going to clarify this a little more mm-hmm. in the show later, but I, I haven't found any truth to that as yet. No, quite the opposite, in fact. In fact, there is no as nations free nations, the only ones with a moral right to exist, are not based on race or ancestry or ancient cultures. They're based on a set of principles which apply to everyone equally. And as a nation, 
one nation doesn't subsidize another nation. That's not na nationhood. Yeah, that's not independence by any definition. And pretenses aside, that's just one nation was an, was an elite underclass getting special privileges not granted to the citizens of that nation. It kind of reminds me of how the Soviet Union used to subsidize Cuba, which was just a, quote, satellite nation, if it could be called that, due to the arrangement. And it consigned Cubans to a permanent poverty. And here's a joke. Now that the Soviet Union is pulled out and doesn't exist anymore and it's all collapsed, this year, or I think it was this year, just, sorry, 2012, I'm still not used to the new year yet, um, Cuba is for the first time subjecting its citizens to income taxes because now they've got to pay for the bills themselves. Right. And now they're, they've already, they're already poor. Yeah. Where do they go from there? That's always the end game. You get this economic and political disaster for both parties to the agreement. Now, as nations, in this case, one is based on race and blood and racism, the other, a constitutional monarchy, is based on principles of governance that apply to all, regardless of race, a principle of governance that our, a governance that our governments have violated, much to their never-ending regret. Mm -hmm. Now, this was from the National Post... Uh, oh, yeah, there's also another, another view to the whole... You know, what we're... I have to make clear... That what we're seeing from the native protesters is not indicative of all natives. Oh, hardly. By, by not, not even by a scratch. We're seeing a tip of a, of a very small tempest in a teapot type of thing. In fact, not all the protesters are native, if you want to say that. That's it, true. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are a lot of natives who don't agree with this and, are, and want to integrate into society, to society. One example was um, Native Entrepreneurs Fall, Far From Idle, written by Claudia Catano in, in the National Post, where she highlights Aboriginal entrepreneur Wilf Lalonde, who is a Cree from northern Alberta, and he sees capitalism as the answer to making natives self-sufficient. And he's got a starting a big oil company and getting in, get, wanting people to get active. He says, we are businessmen. I'm no politician. I'm taking a different path to prosperity, right? Right. And um, when asked what he thought of the Idle No More activists, and this is him speaking, I quote, I think they are taking more of a resource share, but I'm not sure that will ever come about in terms of what they want. I think what will happen here is that they'll have to create their own economic opportunities to be self-sufficient, right? And meaning, better get to work. Believe In other words, not, there are, they, they should really be idle no more, just like him. That's right. <laughs> there are, there, believe it or not, there are about 32,000 Aboriginal businesses in Canada, both on and off the reserve, and I understand six out of ten of them are in a profitable position. Yeah. And, of course, this leads us all down to the whole issue of what is called status. Uh, you know, what is a status? They say stat... The, the word is Indian, status Indian. Um, at law, yeah. In law. Yeah. And... Um, but status is a very dangerous word and when, you, when you apply it to people to whom it shouldn't apply. I think as soon as you've identified a person with status, you no longer have a person who has normal rights and freedoms. People of status, and here I speak not of earned economic or social status, you know, not, not that kind of thing, but of political and legal status, um, separate from other people in that same jurisdiction. These always tend to be wards of the state. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking... Aboriginal, or whether we're talking royalty, they oh, have sure. status too. Yeah, and status unions. is also yeah, and status is also what uh, children have and unions. Yeah, you got that. And um, so to, to have status is sort of to be treated like a child, a second-class citizen, because slaves have a status; they don't have rights. 
And people who have status fall into two broad categories. Either they are exempt from laws which apply to others under the same jurisdiction, or they are subject to restrictions and laws that do not apply to others in the same jurisdiction, right? So that's what creates the status. Neither is justifiable, which is why, incidentally, today's British royalty, as part of the crown so deeply hated by the idlers, is also subject to the laws of the land. The king king and queen can't go around killing anybody and getting away with it. That's Mm -hmm. not going to happen anymore. And it is this equality of treatment and the dignity that comes with it that really the movement is opposed to. But again, that's how we're looking at it. I guess we should hear it in their own words, shouldn't we, Paul? Absolutely. And that's what we're going to hear next. And when we return after this set of breaks, we'll explain who you heard from. These are some um, chiefs, Indian chiefs, um, two, Aboriginal chiefs. Two are chiefs and one's an academic, yeah. Sorry? Uh, two are chiefs, one's an academic. And one's an academic. Okay. Uh, we'll be back right after this. For the children and the children yet unborn, the old people I sat with for hours talking to me about the land and the history and the, where the treaty came from and the spirit of the treaty. That is why I shed tears. I wasn't sent here to compromise my treaty for about 5,500 members. And I'm not going to go there. We can never, never sell our Mother Earth. We will not compromise. It's not for sale, never will be. It's not our right. It's our right to protect it. I'm asking the people here, stand with the people. Stand with us as a people of Turtle Island. And standing united, we will not ever lose this inherent right to this land and in the treaties that came after it. Remember who we were before the treaty. We were people of this land. pieces of legislation, most very specific to First Nations communities, which is designed to both assimilate us as individuals 
and destroy our communities, so break up our reserve lands and, and leave them open to aggressive resource development without any benefit going to our communities. The, what's really being requested isn't for the Idle No More movement to meet with uh, the Prime Minister. It's about a fundamental shift in the relationship between Canada and First Nations, and that needs to start with a nation-to-nation -nation relationship that's the Prime Minister, the Governor General, representatives of the provinces, and the treaty representatives, all of the First Nations leaders across the country. That's what Chief Theresa suspense is asking for that's what we're talking about no more bureaucrat to bureaucrat uh, meetings and certainly no national organization to bureaucrat meetings we're talking about nation to nation and that would that's the only thing that's going to bring about a fundamental shift something that's on an equal playing field think about the treaty promise they promised that we would both live in prosperity we would share the lands and resources and there's only one treaty partner that's wealthy and prosperous and it's not first nations the I Don't Know More movement has the people. It has the people and the numbers that can bring the Canadian economy to its knees. We have the warriors that are standing up now that are willing to go that far. So we're not here to make requests. We're here to demand attention and to demand an end to 140 years of colonial rule. In recent weeks, we've heard a lot of talk about protecting the environment and respecting the old ways and Turtle Island, a reference to North America, etc., but for all individuals in Canada who want to understand the goals of the militant and intellectual leaders of the Idle No More movement, the words we have just heard from Chief Wallace Fox, Ryerson Professor and Lawyer Pam Palmiter, and Manitoba Grand Chief and Lawyer Derek Nepinak, express the three essential issues at the root of the Idle No More's threats of intimidation and economic terrorism. 1. Like the Communist Revolutionary Front de Liberation de Quebec, the FLQ, of the 1970s, the Idle No More activists want to secede from Canada and to assume ownership and governance of land currently owned by the Queen and governed by the federal and provincial governments. 2. Like the FLQ, Idle No More's secessionists demand money to finance the new country that they want to form. In 1970, the FLQ threatened to take factories away from their capitalist owners and turn them over to the government or the people. In 2013, Idle No More's secessionist leaders want to finance their governance by selling natural resources and leases of those lands. For the Idle No More revolutionaries, protecting the environment is a cover story intended to mask the real issue. Who gets the cash for oil, diamonds, pipelines, and the like? 3. Like the FLQ, the Idle No More extortionists threatening to bring Canada's economy to its knees do not want to be, and do not consider themselves to be, Canadian individuals. To summarize, secession, money, and to be treated differently than other Canadians, those are the revolutionary aims of the intellectual and militant leaders of the Idle No More movement. I'll have more to say about what they want, Bob, uh, how they want to be treated later on in the program. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the second issue that has to be addressed at this point is, of course, our own lawmakers yes. and, and our enforcers of the law. Um, we already know that Ontario Superior Court Judge David Brown issued a, an injunction to have protesters removed from the site. It didn't happen the way it was supposed to. The police didn't carry it through because uh, they felt, uh, you know, what was the point. And the judge responded, without Canadians sharing a public expectation of obeying the law, the rule of law will shatter, he said. Mm -hmm. And that's undeniably true, but I don't think it's a matter of the law will shatter. I think it's already shattered and has to be repaired. Yes. And that can't happen as long as the police won't obey court orders or as long as the prevailing view on when and how to use government force continues to be so misguided. 
as in the following editorial by uh, Joe Warmington in the London Free Press, January 10th, who supported the police action. And um, he basically argued that, uh, um, you know, that, that, that the police did the right thing. And he writes, after being slammed by a judge for not properly carrying out his injunction, OPP Commissioner Chris Lewis has fired back saying police not only prevented violence, but maybe, maybe even death. Quote, I am not going to tell a young OPP widow t- uh, that her deceased police husband gave his life to open the tracks when we knew that in a few hours they would have been open anyway, Lewis said. He was, a sta- he was staunch in his defense of Sarnia Police Chief Phil Nelson. Now, to me, it's not the point. They weren't there to open the tracks. They were there to enforce the law. Yes. And to let people know that the law is enforceable. It's not about the tracks at that point. And he said any aggressive action there could have potentially resulted in more aggressive tactics by protesters across the province or nation. Hello, that's what's happening now. Right. By your non-aggressive action. So how do you justify that statement? You can't. There is a time and place for enforcement action, and that decision has to be in the hands of the officer in charge on the scene and not determined by the courts, he quotes uh, the police chief. And I think that's totally wrong, both legally and morally, isn't it? That the, the courts do have <laughs> jurisdiction well, over the, the police. Well, they, they say what the, what the law is, they interpret the law, and the police carry it out. And then he writes, uh, it's certainly easy for a judge to say this from his warm and safe chambers. I don't know what that's about. But it's not about easy, it's about right and wrong. Uh, Do we want our judges or politicians directing police? Yes, when protecting life, liberty, and property. Absolutely, that's Mm -hmm. what their job is. And, you know, right now I think the thing is that the government is looking very weak. And it was interesting that the police officer, Phil Nelson, says, quote, Um, The OPP are not going to solve hundreds of years of legal issues by marching down the road and fighting with a group of First Nations people. Oh, sorry, sorry, that was Lewis that said that. Quote, that doesn't make it right by any means, but it is a reality. You know, it just occurred to me... How does he know it's right? How how does he know it's not right? And yet, uh, and then say the opposite. If if he knows X is right and still supports Y, why is he doing that? Not only that, he's not there to resolve issues. He's there to enforce the law. Why does he think it's his job? Exactly. So... In any case, um, that's not even the legal action, the legal situation. Right. Um, rail sabotage, terrorism, expert says, London Free Press, January 8th, and that was John Thompson of the McKenzie Institute, who made it clear that the sabotage of a CN rail crossing line should have been seen as an act of terror. Quote, this is a low-level, low-grade form of terrorism, said John Thompson. The use of vandalism is a for- form of violence. Well... Let's see what someone else had to say on this issue. We now turn to our higher power, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, that funny face you've got on your your T-shirt there, who in the afternoon of October 13th, 1970, after having placed an armed, invisible military presence in Ottawa, following the kidnapping of James LaCrosse and Pierre Laporte by the FLQ, is confronted by a group of reporters upset that Trudeau would resort to the use of force to deal with terrorists and successionists. Now... The media in this exchange takes the left view of the OPP and police that we hear today, you know, and uh, Trudeau is on the side of law and order. Now, if you've ever wondered why it was a person like the elder Trudeau who ended up being the one able to patriate Canada's constitution back from the British crown via an intellectual uprising, not a violent one, Mm -hmm. you'll wonder no longer after what you are about to hear. 
You will also wonder, no longer wonder why Paul McKeever is wearing that T-shirt, or why, as he once <laughs> said to Christine Williams on CTS interview over over um, Pierre Trudeau, that you called him what the last masculine leader we've had in the this last country? masculine prime minister we've had. Uh, in oh Canada. my goodness. Well, I can think of no politician or statesman who would do the kind of thing Pierre Trudeau would do just off the cuff, like engage in a philosophical debate with a group of reporters on the steps of Parliament. Today's Prime Ministers seem to follow their advisors who say, you know, stay away from those debates. Now, this was a very famous exchange, spontaneously held out in the open, and for a length of time that would rival our studio talk show, <laughs> you know. Um, this was a fame-making moment for Pierre Trudeau. And, of course, he reversed the media's question authority before authority questions you into question the media when the media questions you. But always allow the media to question you. Yes. And that's a real mensch. In the following scenario, Trudeau is in the right, if not on the right. And we will now learn why Paul McKeever is wearing a Trudeau t-shirt. And we'll return after this and some breaks. Sir, what is it with all these uh, men with guns around here? Haven't you noticed? Yeah, I've noticed them. I worry you people decided to have them. What's your worry? I'm not worried, but you so seem to be... So not worry, what's your... I'm not worried. I'm, I'm worried about living in a town that's uh, full of people with guns running around in it. Are you? Have they done anything to you? Have they pushed you around or anything? They've pushed around friends of mine. Yeah? What were your friends doing? Trying to take pictures of them. Aha! Is that against the law? No, not at all. Well, Does, doesn't it worry you, having a town, that you've got to resort to this kind of thing? It doesn't worry me. I think it's natural that if uh, people are being abducted, uh, that they be protected against such abduction. What would do? What would you do if uh, if a Quebec minister, another Quebec minister, were abducted, or a federal minister? Well, but isn't that isn't that one of is, the? Is your position that uh, you should give in to the seven demands of the FMQ and? Uh, Not at all. My position is completely the opposite. What is your position? My position is that you don't give in to any of them. All right. But you don't protect yourselves against the possibility of blackmail. Well, how can you protect everybody that is going to be a possible target without a much bigger military force, without putting somebody on everybody in the country, uh, turning it into almost a police state? Uh, so what do you suggest? That we protect nobody? How can you protect them all? Well, you can't protect them all, but are you therefore arguing that you, can't, you shouldn't protect any? Well, that's right. That's your position. Right. All right, so Pierre Laporte wasn't protected and he was abducted. If you had hindsight, would you not have preferred to protect him and Mr. Cross? Well, I'd say second guessing is pretty well, easy, well, but you can't well, do right, it. But I'm asking you to first guess now. No, because it's impossible. It would have been impossible to protect uh, cabinet ministers of the, uh, the provincial government or uh, diplomats? I would suspect so. With all the diplomats there are in this country? Yeah, we got a big army. You're going to use it up pretty fast at this notice? rate. What do you mean at this rate? What, six and I, seven? I interpolate something here. You, you yeah. seem to be thinking this in your statement in the House this morning. You seem to be saying that you thought the press had been less than responsible in its coverage of the story so far. Could you elaborate on that? Not less, less than responsible. I was suggesting that I should perhaps use a bit more restraint, which you're not doing now. You're going to make a big news item of this, I'm sure. Well, the great you know, is the, a big news item. Uh, yeah, but the, 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 the main thing that the FLQ is trying to gain from this is a hell of a lot of publicity for the movement. Yeah, and I'm suggesting that the more recognition you give to them, uh, the greater their victory is, and I'm not interested in giving them a victory. But you, uh, well, uh, isn't you surely it's a proposition that perhaps it is, uh, would be wise to use uh, uh, less inflammatory terms than, uh, than bandits when you talk about a bunch of people who have the lives of two men in their hands? 
You don't think they're bandits? Well, regardless of what I think, I don't think I'd be inclined to wave a red flag in their face if they held two of my friends or colleagues uh, with guns at their heads. Well, first of all, I didn't call them bandits. I call, I call the people who were in jail now bandits who had been uh, tried before the law and condemned to a prison term. And I said that you people should stop calling them political prisoners. They're not political prisoners. They're outlaws. They're, they're, they're criminal, uh, criminal prisoners. They're not political prisoners. And they're bandits. That's why they're in jail. But you seem, but with your army troops, you seem to be combating them as almost as though it is a war. And if it, if it is a war, oh, is anything that they say have validity? Don't be silly. We're not combating them as a war, but we're using some of the army as peace agents in order that the police be more free to do their job as policemen and uh, not spend their time uh, uh, guarding uh, your friends against uh, some form of kidnapping. But uh, you suggested, you said earlier that. Uh, that you would you protect them in this in this way, but you have said before that this kind of violence, uh, what you're fighting here, the kind of violence of the FLQ, can lead to a police state. Sure, well, that's what you're complaining about, isn't it? Well, yes, but I, surely that that decision is yours, not the FLQ's. Yeah, but I've asked you what your own logic is. It's to let them abduct anybody, not pr not give any protection to anyone, not call off the police. And that seems to be your position. Not, not call off it? the police. Surely the police's job is, is to catch people who break the law. Yeah, but not to give protection uh, to, to those citizens who might be blackmailed for one reason or another. Which must be half the population of the country in one way or another. My, my life... I explain it badly, I think, but, but what you're talking about, I, to me, is choices. Yeah. And my choice is to live in a society that is free and democratic, which means that you don't have people with guns running around in it. All right, then you and, one of, and one of the things I have to give up for that choice mm -hmm. is the fact that people like you may be kidnapped. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sir, if you had to write now... Uh, uh, but the, that's, this isn't my choice, obviously. You know, I, uh, I think it's more important to uh, get rid of those who are committing violence against the total society and those who are trying to run the government through a parallel power by establishing their authority by kidnapping and blackmail. And I think it's our duty as a government to protect government officials and, uh, and, uh, and uh, important people in our society against being uh, used as tools in this blackmail. Now, you don't agree to this, but... Uh, I'm sure that, once again, with hindsight, you would have probably found it preferable if Mr. Cross and Mr. Laporte had been protected from kidnapping, which they weren't, because the, the steps we're taking now weren't taken. But uh, even with your hindsight, I don't see how you can, uh, can uh, deny that. No, I, I still go back to the choice that you, you have to make in the kind of society that you yeah, live well, in. There's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed, but it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. civil liberties to that extent to what extent well would, if you extend this and you say well, okay you're going to do anything to protect them this include wiretapping uh, reducing other civil liberties in some ways yes I think the society must take every means at its disposal to defend itself against the uh, emergent of a parallel power 
which defies the elected power in this country, and I think that goes to any distance. So long as there is a power in here which is challenging the elected representative of the people, I think that power must be stopped, and I think it, it's only, uh, I repeat, weak-kneed, uh, bleeding hearts who are afraid to take these measures. Excuse me, sir. You have been uh, largely silent on this whole case, yeah. and uh, understandably so. I mean, if you had uh, anything to address to the abductors uh, at this point, what would it be? I think Mr. Boisson stated the position yesterday, and I repeated it in the House, with which we agree completely. There's only one thing now that we're prepared to talk to them about. It's uh, a way in which Mr. Cross and Mr. Laporte uh, can be effectively released. This mechanism has to be dealt with first and foremost. Thank you, sir. I say you're playing devil's advocate, but it's a hell of a role. No, I'm not. You really mean it. I really do. If you want to know what is at the heart of the demands of the idle no more calls for secession, it's important to know five main things about what the laws of Canada have imposed on those Canadian individuals, individuals sorry, whom the law calls and labels Indians. One, in Canada, all land from sea to sea to sea is ultimately owned by the Queen. The rest of us hold various kinds of tenancies on her land. A reserve is crown land that the government has set aside for the use and benefit of a group of what the law calls Indians, uh, but in fact, not just for the individuals, but for the band as a whole. Two, in 1763, after France ceded huge areas of land to Britain, the government of Great Britain proclaimed by order and council that huge tracts of land west of the Appalachians were to be reserved to Indians for their use and benefit. However, in the decades and centuries that follows, more individuals moved to North America from around the world. As the number of immigrants to Canada began to grow, the British and later Canadian governments wanted to free up the large tracts of reserve land for settling, mining, and other development. Accordingly, it entered into treaties in which the so-called Indians freely gave up any rights they had to large tracts of land. In exchange, the government agreed to set up smaller reserves of land, still for exclusive use and benefit of the bands, and agreed to provide Indians living on those reserves with ongoing financial support. For example, pursuant to the James Bay Treaty, which is the one that governs Attawapiskat. The Indians of uh, Attawapiskat in 1930 sold their interest in all North American land in exchange for a smaller reserve of land for, the use, for their use and benefit, plus a one-time payment of $8 per band member, plus ongoing annual payments of $4 per band member, plus money for schools and education. Three, unlike the land and homes purchased off a reserve, uh, reserve land is not the private property of any individual. Instead, the law sets up a reserve as an area of land that is for the use and benefit of the band collectively, as a whole. Think of it like the ownership of a city park, and you won't be far off conceptually. Everyone gets to use it, but the people using it do not own it. Terrible situation. Yes. Because the land is for the use and enjoyment of the band, as a whole, the Indian Act says that a band must vote on how to use and enjoy the land it, it lives upon. Uh, finally, the law says that reserve land cannot be given away, sold, or leased. If land reserved to Indians is to be sold or leased, the band first has to surrender the reserve to the Crown, and it is no longer reserved to the use and benefit of the band. After the reserve is surrendered, the land can be sold, leased, etc., to just about anybody, much like land in the rest of Canada. I'll sum up these five points as follows. Reserve land is owned by the Queen, set aside for the use and benefit of a band, and the Indian Act essentially sets up each reserve as a commune governed by majority rule. 
Idle no more protesters are objecting to several pieces of legislation passed by the Harper government, but the protesters have shown particular objection to Bill C-45, which passed into law last month. They say it is about the environment, but C- Bill C-45 doesn't mention the environment at all. Rather, B- B- sorry, Bill C-45 made it easier for the ban to vote in favour of surrendering the land to the Crown, so it could be leased for as I said, those various purposes. Why do the intellectual and militant leaders of the Idle No More protest object to a law that makes it easier for a band to decide what to do with their own reserve? Well, it turns out that the answer being provided by the revolutionary secessionist leaders of the Idle No More protest is philosophical in nature. So let's begin by doing what they are hesitant to do. Let us define our terms. One, individual, a single human being. Collective, a group of human beings. Individualism, the idea that an individual deserves to receive only what he earns. Collectivism, the idea that an individual is a member of a group of individuals and that the individual deserves to uh, receive a share of the sum total of all earned by all individuals in the group. Racism, the idea that what one deserves should be determined at least partly by by what one's own genetic makeup. Tribalism, the idea that there are several different collectives typically defined by unchosen factors such as as genetic makeup, ancestry, place of birth, or ways of living, and that one deserves, what one deserves should be determined at least partly by the tribe one belongs to. Tribalism does not have to be racist, but ancestry, place of birth, or ways of living can be highly correlated to the genetic makeup of of people living in a given area. Just a note, a tribe is not a reference to aboriginals per se. Hitler's Aryan Germans were said to share a race, an ancestry, a place of birth, and ways of living. Hitler was a tribalist who thought all blonde-haired, blue-eyed Germans deserved more land than other tribes because, he said, his own tribe of Aryans had a superior ability to sacrifice themselves for the greater good of the tribe. (laughs) The same is true of racial segregationists in the American South or the secessionists of Quebec who want to separate country for the Quebecois and their cultures and traditions all are rightly called tribalists. Communism. That's a political system in which all individuals are forced, by law, to live as members of a tribe or other collective. Finally, capitalism. A political system in which the law prevents anyone from forcing individuals to live as members of a tribe or other collective. So what is the nature of the philosophical dispute that is at the heart of the Idle No More's movement uh, uh, call their their call for secession and resources and against so-called assimilation. What's the at the base of it? Well, Pamela Palmiter, whose voice we heard earlier in the program, arguably is the most prominent intellectual leader and spokesperson of the Idle No More protest. On January 10th, 2013, the Christian Science Monitor quoted Palmiter as follows, quote, They, the Harper government, have a whole suite of legislation ever since they've been in power that has been very nearly unanimously opposed certainly by First Nations groups anyway, and they all have a very, very similar theme, focusing on individual rights, disbanding communal rights, unquote. You can read a lot of confusing stuff about why the Idle No More protesters want to secede, but this statement by Pam Palmiter is uh, the most honest and clear statement of what is at the root of their desire to separate from Canada. Their essential and overarching objection is the replacement of communal rights with individual rights. What does she mean by communal rights? She means laws like those found in the Indian Act and in treaties that force all individuals living on Indian Indian land, or so-called Indian land, to live as members of a tribe or other collective. In other words, 
By communal rights, she means communism. By individual rights, she means laws that defend an individual from those who would force them to live as part of a collective. Such individual rights in law include such things as the right to private property and the freedom of an individual to make his own decisions about what he will do with his own property, whether his neighbors approve or not. In a nutshell, Palmetter rejects individualism and capitalism. She is championing tribalism and communism. She wants individuals who live on Indian land to be forced... uh, sorry, to be forced by law to live as members of a tribe or other collective. She rejects Bill C-45 because they make it easier for bands to replace a racially defined communist territory with a race-indifferent capitalist territory. Mm. The militant and intimidating secessionists of the Idle No More protest want a continuation of the communist societies that the Indian Act, the treaties, and other laws of Canada have imposed on Aboriginal individuals. That is why so many anti-capitalists, the trade unionists, the envious, drunk, and unemployed core of the Occupy movement, the scumbag, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel terrorist sympathizers, and the radical environmentalists have all come together this year as Idle No More. There are certainly well-meaning people among the Idle No More protesters who just want an improvement of some of the abominable, abominable conditions on some Indian reserves in Canada. But make no mistake... The core goal of the Idle No More secessionists is the preservation and expansion of communist governance within North America. Now, clearly, secession itself is not wrong in all cases. Those who secede to be free from communism are clearly morally right to do so. But when the goal of secession is to set up or continue a racist communist regime, in other words, when the goal is to deprive individuals of their freedom, including their freedom privately to own, use, and trade property, secession is contrary to human nature, it is morally wrong, and it threatens the very individuals who would uh, be, end up uh, stuck on lands being governed by racist, communist, idle no more revolutionaries. Finally, Pam Palmiter and others may be right about the overall agenda of the federal government. It may ultimately want to put all Canadians on the same footing, giving them the same legal rights and freedom. But those who think that this agenda is a partisan, Harper-conservative agenda are sorely mistaken. Consider a WikiLeak I found online yesterday that allegedly quotes Canada's federal uh, minister of Aboriginal affairs, John Duncan, as saying, quote, Crachin and Trudeau had it right in the 69 white paper. Duncan is referring to a 1969 statement of government policy submitted on behalf of the liberal government of Pierre Elliott Trudeau by then-minister of Aboriginal affairs, Jean Crachin. What did the 1969 paper say? Let me quote from it. Quote, The government believes that its policies must lead to the full, free, and non-discriminatory participation of the Indian people in Canadian society. Such a goal requires a break with the past. It requires that the Indian people's role of dependence be replaced by a role of equal status, opportunity, and responsibility, a role they can share with all other Canadians. Unquote. Wow. Yes. 1969, Pierre Trudeau. And, and Jean Chrétien, both mm-hmm. prime ministers eventually. The Liberal government's white paper proposed the repeal of the Indian Act. It proposed the eventual elimination of all treaties and the artificial discriminatory us and them system that the law and treaties imposes. It, it proposed giving proper title, like the title you and I have in houses, to Aboriginals so that they could buy and sell and use or dispose of their land like any other Canadian. And the white paper proposed eliminating the Department of Indian Affairs. If the Harper Conservatives' agenda is the same as or similar to the agenda of the Trudeau Liberals, there arguably is one reason for that. The agenda is morally right and just. Up next, Bob, we're going to hear more from Pierre Elliott Trudeau as we go into a very, very brief uh, segment on law enforcement. Okay. 
I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis, when violent and fanatical men are attempting to destroy the unity and the freedom of Canada. And I want to tell you what the government is doing to deal with them. It has now been demonstrated to us by a few misguided persons just how fragile a democratic society can be if democracy is not prepared to defend itself and just how vulnerable to blackmail are tolerant, compassionate people. Their purpose is to exploit the normal human feelings of Canadians and to bend those feelings of sympathy into instruments for their own violent and revolutionary ends. They want their grievances aired by force in public on the assumption, no doubt, that all right-thinking persons would be persuaded that the problems of the world can be solved by shouting slogans and insults. Should the governments give in to this crude blackmail, we would be facing the breakdown of the legal system and its replacement by the law of the jungle. The government's decision to prevent this from happening is not taken just to defend an important principle. It is taken to protect the lives of Canadians from dangers of the sort I have mentioned. Freedom and personal security are safeguarded by laws. Those laws must be respected in order to be effective. If a democratic society is to continue to exist, it must be able to root out the cancer of an armed revolutionary movement that is bent on destroying the very basis of our freedoms. It's a well-known technique of revolutionary groups who attempt to destroy society by unjustified violence to goad the authorities into inflexible attitudes. The revolutionaries then employ this evidence of alleged authoritarianism as justification for the need to use violence in their renewed attacks on the social structure. I appeal to all Canadians not to become so obsessed by what the government has done today in response to terrorism that they forget the opening play in this vicious game. That play was taken by the revolutionaries. They chose to use bombing, murder, and kidnapping. Those who would defy the law and ignore the opportunities available to them to right their wrongs and satisfy their claims will receive no hearing from this government. We shall ensure that the laws passed by Parliament are worthy of respect. We shall also ensure that those laws are respected. We have seen in many parts of Canada all too much evidence of violence in the name of revolution in the past 12 months. We are now able to see some of the consequences of violence. Persons who invoke violence are raising deliberately the level of hate in Canada. They do so at a time when the country must eliminate hate and must exhibit tolerance and compassion in order to create the kind of society which we all desire. Yet those who disrespect legal processes create a danger that law-abiding elements of the community, out of anger and out of fear, will harden their attitudes and refuse to accommodate any change, 
or remedy any shortcomings. They refuse because fear deprives persons of their normal sense of compassion and their normal sense of justice. This government is not acting out of fear. It is acting to prevent fear from spreading. It is acting to maintain the rule of law without which freedom is impossible. It is acting to make clear to kidnappers, revolutionaries and assassins that in this country laws are made and changed by the elected representatives of all Canadians, not by a handful of self-selected dictators. Those who would gain power through terror rule through terror. The government is acting, therefore, to protect your life and your liberty. Within Canada, there is ample room for opposition and dissent, but none for intimidation and terror. There are very few times in the history of any country when all persons must take a stand on critical issues. This is one of those times. This is one of those issues. Wow. Amazing stuff. He really understood his stuff. He certainly he? did. Bob, the headline this morning read, It's Just the Beginning. That was the headline in London's London Free Press's uh, mm -hmm. article, quoting the leader of an Idle No More protest held at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor yesterday. The Free Press reports that approximately 1,000 protesters created a kilometres-long uh, line-up at the approach of the bridge to the USA. Among the protesters, quote, Windsor auto workers and university professor professors, unquote. In other words, the leftists, the activists. Why were they there? Greg Peters, chief of the Delaware Nation near Thamesville, said, quote, We are saying this is our land, and they, the government, are saying no, it's not. But it is. The Free Press reports, quote, As promised... The Windsor police did not impede the peaceful protest, instead stopping bridge-bound traffic to allow it. In other words, the police imposed a blockade of the bridge to assist the protesters in their assault on the Canadian economy, individual liberty and property rights. The Free Press reports that, meanwhile, at an Idle No More protest in Belleville yesterday, quote, reporters were kept at a distance and a protester threw a rock at one who ventured too close. CN police also threatened reporters with fines for trespassing, and at least one was handed a $65 ticket, unquote. A number of things need to be said about this disgraceful spectacle, Bob. I'm, I don't have much time, but I'm just going to point form them. First is, it's no, it's no surprise that they picked the, uh, the only main, uh, there's, there's 23 bridges to the United States, they picked the private one, the Ambassador Bridge. It's an anti-capitalist protest, never mm -hmm. forget that. Secondly... Uh, you know, quite apart from the laws of Ontario being violated, it seems to me that the protesters are violating their own treaties. Those treaties normally include language to the effect that the chiefs and their people will not interfere with or trouble any person passing through or traveling through the Queen's land, other sections of land. Oh, Ezra Levant highlighted that big time on his, right. his report. Right. You know, intimidation, at my view, comes at a price. In my view, bands who breach their own treaties should lose the treaty-based claim to a reserve of the land and the money that they are entitled to under those treaties. You can't have it both ways. Obey or don't. It's a, it's a deal or it's not a deal, and it can't only be broken by one side. Finally, there's this myth being put about by both the chief of police, the OPP, and the, and the, the premier of the province. The, the myth goes, uh, police are completely independent. They decide what to do, who to arrest, what to go, where to go, and etc. That's utterly false. This all comes out of the Ipperwash inquiry, uh, the Ipperwash event. Nobody wants to be seen shooting anybody, and, and uh, nobody wants to be called a racist and all of that kind of stuff. 
Well, here's, the, here's what Justice Linden actually wrote in his 2007 Ipperwash report. Quote, this is his finding. The relationship between police and government is a delicate balance. On the one hand, the police will have too much independence if they are not subject to legitimate direction from the democratically elected authorities. Nor should the police be independent of requirements to explain and justify their actions. Tipping the balance too far in favor of police independence, therefore, could result in the police effectively becoming a law unto themselves. What did he recommend? He recommended that the Police Services Act should be amended to specify that the power of the responsible minister to direct the OPP does not include directions regarding specific law enforcement decisions in individual cases, notwithstanding the responsible minister's authority to issue directives. But this uh, section should be further amended to specify that the commissioner of the OPP has operational responsibility with respect to the control of the OPP, subject to written directives from the responsible minister. And the result was an act that now reads that the Solicitor General shall issue directives and guidelines respecting policy matters. It's not only uh, an option for the government to do it, it's an obligation for them to say where the police priorities will be uh, focused and whether or not they will enforce property rights. They're defaulting on that right now, Bob. Awesome. I tell you, you know, it just reminds me what Trudeau just said. He says, we're not acting out of fear, we're acting to prevent fear. And that's exactly the opposite of the principle of which today's governments are operating. You can see it in Caledonia, you can see it in all the terror that's being brought to the people who are, who are just living near Aboriginal areas. Oh, yes. And that's got to stop. It's going to stop one way or the other. We can't predict how. But that's all we've got time for this week. And so we'll have to leave you for another week so you can join us again when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do, and we'll see you next week. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be up Your Excellency I am ready Ready for what? To be executed Oh, don't be ridiculous Well, then you're going to exile me, of course Well, I've never heard such nonsense Then what will become of me? You will become a member of our little community you mean become one of the masses? We don't like to think of ourselves that way. We're a free society, and you will be free to do or become whatever you want. Anything? Mm-hmm.